Hey everybody, it's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here uh, at the Summit. Um, let me say this before we get started. Tonight, after our gathering, we're doing something called the Summit Class. Um, the Summit Class is basically a dinner where we give you the opportunity to learn more about what does it mean to be part of the Summit family. And we really see church through that lens. We see it as a family. And what we desire is really to get our people out of rows into circles that they wouldn't just kind of spectate, but they would also participate And we really think that's for your good. We think it's for the good of our church. We think it's what God desires for you. And we believe that when those three things are aligned with one another, um, we would at least love to challenge you to explore what that would look like uh, further. And so after this gathering, I know some of you are here, you're even here for the very first time, or you came and you didn't know we were doing this and you were planning to do something else. It's totally fine. Uh, But I would love to at least challenge you. Even if this is your very first time and you didn't know RSVP, it's totally fine. After we get done, as you leave these doors, instead of going left to go out the bay doors, go right to a free dinner. Um, seems like a wonderful opportunity for you, and uh, it's going to be a great dinner, healthy, nutritious, mod market. Uh, we take good care of you when you come, and you can tell your mom you ate a very healthy dinner tonight, and uh, you can also learn more about what does it look like for you to be part of the Summit family. So it won't go long. It'll be 45 minutes, an hour at most, and uh, we would love for you to at least explore what it look like for you to really commit here. Now, um, let me say this. Let's now jump into what we're actually talking about. I feel like um, this evening is one of those times where I really wish I could almost pass around the microphone and um, just kind of ask questions to many of you, um, because I want you to think about how, when you were growing up, you had this propensity to go through various phases. Did you do this, like where you would go through various phases or get into various things, and you look back on yourself, and you look back on the, the posters you put on your wall, or you put, like, look at the t-shirts you wore, and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was in that band, or I was into that. I can't pass around the microphone, unfortunately, so I asked some of our, par- uh, of our pastors to, ask, uh, to tell all sorts of self-deprecating stories uh, about themselves. And uh, so just to kind of give you some examples, so this makes a little bit of sense. Um, Justin Almas, our newest pastor and pastor of uh, city groups, uh, he was talking about how when he was growing up, I guess because this, he grew up in California, uh, he went through like a skateboarding phase where he like wore the skate clothes and got the skate shoes. Um, what he told us though, the catch with that was that his mom would never let him skateboard. Um, so he dressed like a skater, but his mom wouldn't let him skateboard at all. Um, for me, just so I'm not kind of, uh, you know, pretending like I'm immune to this, in high school for me, I went through a, like, huge NASCAR phase. Um, all my friends were, like, really big into NASCAR, and so I got into NASCAR, and I, like, wore the hat, and I bought the t-shirts, and I put the bumper stickers in the back of my car, and I would go to races, and I would pretend like I knew what was going on at races. I'd be like, man, like, the number 20 car is handling great today, which is, like, funny because, like, I'm the type of guy who, like, I don't know how to change my oil, and I'm, like, talking about this and trying to fit in. Uh, So I went through this uh, phase. Brian Turney, one of our other pastors, talked about a more recent phase where he moved to Colorado in his 20s, and he started getting all uh, plaid and flannel and wore a beard all the time to kind of fit in with all the cool kids here in Denver. Um, Many of us have gone through that phase, but it's interesting, isn't it? Think about this. Like, you and I, we have this propensity to kind of not just go through these phases, but kind of uh, almost portray various images of ourselves. Um, And it's almost like we change them as often as, like, we would change costumes around Halloween every year. I mean, even for many of you who have been here in Denver for only a short, short period of time, like even if you've only been here for a year, it's possible to, for you to have been like six different people since you've been here. I mean, you might have gone through like an outdoors person phase where like you went down to the REI and you got all the gear that made it look like you hike all the time, even though you might not actually hike ever. And then you went through like a hipster phase and then you went through uh, 
I don't know, you went through a CrossFit phase, and then you didn't like CrossFit anymore, so you went through like a Zumba phase. You didn't tell anybody about that, but you were doing it. And, uh, <laughs> and, then, and then you went through, uh, I don't know, like you were here for a year, so all of a sudden you're kind of a local, and so you went through like a, I'm really, you know, frustrated by the people who are moving here to Colorado phase, and like all that happened since like a year. You've been like six different people even since you've lived here. And I feel like of all these examples, I feel like Tourney's is my favorite because it's so funny to me how you and I, we have this propensity to continue this sort of change uh, changing, regular changing of who we are and our identities, like even into our adulthood. Like for me, I would have assumed like, okay, once I get out of puberty, once I move away from my parents, I, I'm going to kind of know who I am and I'll have a job and I'll be stable. But it's funny, isn't it? Like even into adulthood, even in our 20s, 30s, 40s, even beyond that, uh, we are regularly reinventing ourselves and portraying these very different images of even who we were six months ago. Now, the question is, like, why do we do this? Why do we have such a desire to regularly reinvent ourselves? And I think sometimes... It's not for a bad reason whatsoever. You get exposed to new things and you get new interests, and that's really cool. That's really exciting as you learn more about the world. But at least for me, as I've you know interact with the people, interact with people fairly often, I feel like for me, what I notice are kind of two consistent themes when it comes to these people who are like regularly changing their identities. Uh, the first is really that it seems like there's sort of this universal insecurity that exists in all of us, and I think we're really afraid. Um, that if I don't reinvent myself or if I don't try something different, I'm not really sure, like, are you going to love me more or not? Like, and so we kind of throw out this kind of new version of ourselves, like Brian 7.0, and like, are you going to love me more or less? And if you love me more, I'll keep doing that stuff. And if you love me less, I'll, I'll become somebody completely different. We'll try this again. So I think there's tremendous insecurity where we reinvent ourselves with the desire of saying, like, well, maybe this will get me more of the love that I clamor for. I feel like also... Like, the reason that we desire change so often in our lives is because we're coming out of something that we really desire not to be that way anymore. We're coming out of tremendous brokenness. And for us, we would really, really love um, for things not to be the way they've been. And for many of you, that's why you're even here tonight is because, like, you look at the life you've been living for the past few months or past few years, and you're finally like, okay, I can't do this anymore. I'm at least willing to change. Like, the pain of staying the same is greater than the, cha- the pain of changing. And so you're just like, okay, I give in, white flag, I'm willing to change. And so that's my observation, at least, is that the city as a whole, both in the 21st century and in the 1st century, has often functioned like a magnet that draws men and women who are looking to reinvent themselves. I mean, I know this is a little bit of a stereotype, but it seems like in more rural communities, people are kind of happy with the, things, the way things have been, and they kind of hope they'll stay that way for a long period of time. But in cities, like, we're really open to becoming completely new people. In fact, what brought many of you to Denver was you were looking to start new and start fresh, and something happened to you, or a relationship ended, or you guys broke up, or a marriage ended, or whatever it might be, and you're finally here hoping that uh, you'll finally kind of produce the version of yourself, you'll finally change in the way that you've always clamored to, to have done. And let me just tell you, if that's you, if you're looking for change or you moved here in desire of change, I really feel like the story we're going to study tonight is really going to be helpful to you um, because what you're going to see is a city, and it's a really crazy city. Like the city of Ephesus, I, I feel like people talk about how crazy Denver is and like, yeah, we have more dispensaries than Starbucks and McDonald's combined. And we say, well, like, that's absolutely crazy. But like Ephesus makes Denver look like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Like this place was absolutely crazy. And we'll explain more about this. But it was full of men and women who were longing to be dramatically changed. You know what's really interesting? They are. Like, that's what you're going to see. These people realize what you and I are desperately reaching for, that type of deep, intimate, uh, uh, holistic life change in our lives. And so I hope, I hope this is really just 
Um, I don't know. I hope you're not just like entertained. Like, I hope you're really impacted by this. Like, I really have been praying that for you because like we desire this. I feel like this is such a great story that puts change on display. Now, let let me, we're going to dive into this. Let let me just kind of give you my thesis on the front end and then um, we'll explain it. Okay, so here's how real life change happens in this scene. You ready for this? It's not through syncretism, but through total surrender. I'm not expecting that to kind of make total sense right on the front end, but that's where we're going. That's where we spend about a half hour explaining what you see is a rejection of syncretism in favor of total surrender to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And, and so here's what we're going to see. If you kind of, we're going to look at verse 11. Remember, leading up to this, Paul has been targeting these major urban centers. Christianity began as an urban faith, much to our surprise. Uh, he has left the European continent. If you remember, he was in Athens last week. He now enters into Ephesus. This would be in modern-day Turkey. So he's entered into the Asian continent now. And here's what happens. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, before we continue, I feel like this is just one of those places where I need to hit the pause button, and you're like, what in the world is going on here? And wait, like, are the guys on late-night Christian television who are selling, like, magic handkerchiefs, like, do I buy those? Like, are we supposed to be? So here's kind of what's going on here, at least from a scholarly perspective. What scholars believe that God is doing is essentially contextualizing. He is speaking or preparing to speak the gospel into the culture, uh, really through their language. And the Ephesians' language was one of, like, weird spirituality and almost magic. And so we'll see this kind of in a little bit here in terms of how this works. But basically, here's this culture that's obsessed with spirituality, that's obsessed with magic, and God kind of does the weirdest and greatest magic trick of all. He takes used handkerchiefs, like these would have been totally gross, like sweat rags, like we don't know if there's snot on these things or not, used by Paul, and it dramatically changes lives more than anything they've ever seen before. They're like, whoa, wait a second. Like, this is the real thing, and we need to wake up, and we need to pay attention. And in fact, what happens is some people in the region start to take notice. And look what happens starting in verse 13. Then some itinerant, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, which is really interesting to me. Like, I don't know how you get this job. I don't know how you, like, go in this career path. But itinerant Jewish exorcists, so guys who go around picking fights with demons, trying to cast out demons, uh, but they don't do it in one place. They travel around. They're itinerant, and they're Jewish in their faith. Look what happens. They undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now, the, the part that I want you to pay attention to and really understand is this. I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, at first blush, what this probably seems like is like, oh, like, isn't this wonderful? Like, these guys are using the name of Jesus. Um, but here's what it's important to understand. From a historical standpoint, uh, this was a fairly normal practice for guys who had no faith in Jesus to use the name of Jesus in, in sort of the hopes of kind of wrangling as much uh, important spiritual names as possible for the sake of winning a spiritual war. Um, really, I know that probably doesn't land immediately. So the best analogy I can give, is anybody seen Talladega Nights? Uh, the Ballad of Ricky Bobby. And if you ever saw that movie, um, if you remember, uh, Will Ferrell thinks he's on fire and he's running around on the, tr- the, the racetrack naked, or mostly naked. And, um, and as he's running around, he's like, save me, Jesus. Save me, Jewish God. Save me, Allah. Save me, Tom Cruise. Like, like what is he doing in that scene? He's like drawing on as many kind of like names as possible. He doesn't really believe in any of them. It's just kind of a moment of desperation. Okay, we, we, we claim this person. Uh, that's what the... the these Jewish itinerant exorcists are doing. It's like, okay, like, Paul, Jesus, Allah, whatever, like, whatever will work, 
throwing it together for the sake of hoping that it will win this spiritual battle. Now, here's what's important to understand before we kind of see how this goes terribly and comically wrong. Um, what you're going to see, or, or what this is, is what we would call syncretism. Now, syncretism, let me just give you kind of the definition, and then we'll unpack it. Um, it's basically the combination of different forms of belief or practice. And really not just the combination of different beliefs or practice, but usually opposed beliefs and practices. And so kind of what functionally happens in the scene, and really in our lives as well, is that you almost think about like a stew of spirituality, and the name of Jesus is nothing more than sort of a name to throw in there. It's nothing more than a magical incantation to chant when we're in trouble. It's nothing more than a a lucky rabbit's foot to rub uh, if there's an issue or if we're in a crisis. And that's really the way that these Jewish leaders of the day see the name of Jesus. We don't really believe in him. We don't have a desire to worship and, and follow him. Like, he just seems like he's important and significant so we'll just throw his name out there, hopefully to make things better. Now, before we see how this goes, let me just make an observation in terms of how I see this play out in our culture. Particularly, I feel like kind of the essence of what I do in many ways is working with people, um, and not just working with people, but working with people who desire change. And uh, here's my observation, okay? Is one, most people are really desirous of life change. Like most people are just not very content with where they are in life. And I feel like probably the best place that you see this is in advertising. I feel like advertisers by their very nature, they're some of the best sociologists in culture, and they're observing like what are the needs and what are the desires, and what is basically the essence of every single advertisement. It's like, hey, you're tired of your life being terrible, aren't you? Like, aren't you tired of being ugly? Like, aren't you tired of being stupid? Aren't you tired of being impotent? Aren't you tired of being a disappointment to everybody? You're like, yeah, I am. Well, drink this beer and everything will be better. And you're like, okay, well, like, at least the actors look happy. Like, I could be like that? Awesome. I'll drink that beer or I'll drink that soda or I'll start using this cleaning product. Like, look how calm and relaxed mom is because she uses Clorox bleach. Praise be to God. So, so all of us, we're kind of desirous of life being better than it is right now. And here's my other observation, too, uh, my second. Uh, I've when people are uh, desirous of life change, my observation at least is that most people are pretty open to Jesus being part of that life change. That's just what I experience. Like whether people are religious or irreligious, whether they have a church background or they don't have a church background, people get in a crisis and they are clamoring for Jesus to do something. Even though they have no faith in Jesus whatsoever. Again, to kind of give you a, uh, an example from this, um, I know I'm blowing you away with my um, how well-read I am. But if you've ever seen that episode of The Simpsons where um, Homer gets tricked into going on a mission trip and he's like, I don't want to tell people about Jeebus. I don't even believe in Jeebus. And then like 30 seconds later, the plane starts to take off towards this mission trip and he's like, save me, Jeebus. Like, I feel like that is the way our culture handles Jesus all the time. It's like, yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. You know, and all of a sudden, it's like you forgot to study for that test, or you're going to be late for an appointment, and you really need to be on time, or you're trying to get that job for that job interview, or there's a major crisis in your life, and all of a sudden, everybody's starting to get super spiritual, and praying, and bargaining with God, and like, whatever it takes. Like, I'll be at church all the time. I just see that all the time in the midst of crises. Now, my third observation is that not only do people desire life change, and not only people really open to Jesus being the one who has some part in changing their lives. Um, the third observation is that typically I see that people want Jesus to change their lives, but to change their lives on his terms. So here's what I mean by this. Is that Jesus becomes nothing more than sort of a magical name to drop for the sake of you getting what you want. And then he's kind of like Santa Claus, like I've been a good person and I've said the right things, give me what I want and leave me the heck alone until next year when I need you again. 
Let me tell you where I see this. I see this in families. I see this in families who maybe make their children go to church because it's like, well, I don't know, if they like get around Jesus, like maybe they won't get pregnant as teenagers or maybe they won't do drugs. Um, but when it comes to like, okay, like let's submit the entirety of our family to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's submit our lives and our marriage as parents uh, and parent, our parenting philosophy to Jesus. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, I just wanted you to keep my kid out of trouble. I don't want you to like change our lives. We like interrupt our rhythms. I just keep my kid out of jail. Or I feel like I see this with relationships all the time where people are like, like, okay, like, I hope this guy likes me back or like, it looks like we're going to break up. Can we make this relationship work? And all of a sudden people get tremendously spiritual and can we make this relationship work? And Jesus move and like, we'll give this relationship to you. And then like, it works and you stay together and you don't break up. But it's like, oh, we didn't really mean like, we want to follow Jesus like with the sex stuff. Like, no, like that's ridiculous, outlandish. Like just come back when we need something else. Thank you, Jesus. You're done here. See those people with businesses? I mean, people all the time, like, especially, like, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, like, and I just, I feel like, I don't know, being an entrepreneur will make you have, like, more dependency on the God of this universe than anything else because it's just, like, a psychopathic path to take (laughs) in your life. And I love all of you who have done this with your lives. It's tremendously courageous of you. But all of a sudden, guys are getting, like, super, super spiritual because the vast majority of startups fail and it's like, Jesus, move and change and bless. And then it's like, oh, we're going to like actually treat our employees the way like God would treat people. Like, oh, we're going to actually like handle our money in a responsible way. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, just bless us and then kind of be on your way, Jesus. You're done here. Thank you very much. And what that is, is syncretism. Like, it's a syncretistic faith that masquerades as Christianity. And I think it's probably the most prevalent faith in America. And it's a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit of the historical Orthodox Christian faith. And here's the thing about it. There's a, there's a really bad thing about it, and there's a really good thing about it. Now, here's the bad thing about it. It's syncretistic faith that sees Jesus as nothing more than an errand boy to perform tasks to get us what we want. It just doesn't work. Now, I feel like I give all sorts of examples of this, and let me just say this. is The example that's given in this scene is the best example that could ever be given of all examples. Like, it is stunning, and it's probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire scripture. So let me read this for you, and then we'll see what the good part of this is, okay? So you remember in verse 14, they say, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Uh, look at verse 15. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Uh, which is already comical to me that, like, the demons were almost, like, having conversations in the spiritual realm. They're like, okay, we know who Jesus is, and we've heard of Paul, but I have no idea who you are. I would start to get worried in this moment, and you see why in verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that he fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, picture this scene, okay? I'm straight up stealing this joke, but when you go into a fight and you're wearing pants... And after the fight, you were not wearing pants. Like, there's not a debate as to who won the fight, right? Like, it was not, the nature of this conflict was not like, man, like the sons of Sceva got in some punches and the demons got in some punches. The sons of Sceva came in with pants and they left without pants, naked, wounded, and afraid. And I feel like that is the best visual image that I can give you of how syncretistic faith will go in your life. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> and so if you're struggling with this, just memorize this. Make this your memory verse for the week. And uh, man, I love the Bible because it's like, I would have edited that 
It looks like we're putting that part in. <laughs> but here's the really, here, so, so the bad part of it is it doesn't work because it's a counterfeit. But here's the really good thing is, is a lot of you in this room grew up or were exposed to counterfeits of the Christian faith where maybe your parents used Jesus as nothing more than sort of a taskmaster to get you to do the right things or used Jesus as a magical incantation to keep their marriage together. But and the reality is, is you're really burnt out because you grew up in and around that. And for you, as you're thinking about your life being radically changed, you might not even think Jesus is the one you should first turn to because you've kind of tried the whole Jesus thing, you've been exposed to the whole church thing, and you've seen how it goes, and you saw the way your parents handled it and everything else like this. But here's the really good news, is that was something completely different than the Jesus who changes lives in this scene. Like, what we see is a syncretistic faith that you might have grown up around or been exposed to that didn't work and burnt you out on the faith is a counterfeit of the historical Orthodox Christian faith. And here's the really great news about counterfeits, is counterfeits lead us to pursue and search for the right thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, a counterfeit doesn't mean we're like, oh, I'm done with this. It's like, no, like the real thing exists out there, and I'm going to go search for it. Like, if I give you a a counterfeit $100 bill, and it didn't work, like, what are you going to do? You're going to be like, well, I'm done with money. I'm not working for money anymore. Nope. We'll do this old school, and you'll give me, like, lambs and cows after I performed weeks of labor for you, and, uh, yeah, that's the way I'll eat from now on. And you're like, no, give me the real thing. And the beauty about you maybe growing up by a counterfeit is like, I'm really sorry you experienced that, but you don't have to be burnt out by that. You don't have to reject the entirety of the Christian faith because of that. You just need to understand that you grew up around something fake and you need to pursue the real thing. And really what you see in this scene is a juxtaposition of how good the real thing really is. I love how Luke, the author of this, is a doctor, tremendously brilliant. He juxtaposes how terrible a syncretistic faith is to how beautiful total surrender is. And that's what happens next. He, he totally, I mean, it's unbelievably on purpose. And he juxtaposes this and says, let me show you how beautiful the real thing is. And look at this. Look at how total surrender manifests itself in this scene. So all of this has gone down. And if you look at verse 17, look at what happens next. And this, so everything that's happened up to this part, became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear, like as you can imagine, I would be afraid too, fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now, again, this is really significant because of the nature of what Ephesus was like. Ephesus was a tremendously significant uh, city. Again, remember, it's in, it's in modern-day Turkey. And it was home to one of the ancient wonders, of, uh, one of the seven ancient wonders uh, of the world at the time, the Temple of Artemis. Now, the Temple of Artemis it was devoted to sort of the city's worship of the pagan god Artemis, who was the pagan god of fertility. And it was crazy. And I feel like the best way to kind of reflect its influence in the community is to talk about the size of the temple. Um, Just to kind of give you perspective, like our building right now is one of, I think, the largest church buildings in downtown Denver. This is a pretty big building just on a whole for for a downtown urban context. It's about 10,000 square feet. The Temple of Artemis was 10 times the size of the building that you're sitting in right now. Probably the closest comparison of a a building in downtown is actually Coors Field. That's about the closest uh, to what the Temple of Artemis was. So you imagine this ginormous presence in the middle of this community that reflected how these people were spiritually seeking and and really worshiping incorrectly. And there was all sorts of crazy things associated with it. There was all sorts of... uh, 
uh, temple prostitutes and weird sexual rituals, all sorts of stuff. And all of a sudden, these people get exposed to the real thing. And they say, like, oh, this, this God, like, whoever this God is, he is the real God. And they, they kind of wake up and they take notice. Now, here's what's interesting. Verse 18, and many of those who are now believers, um, so we see that some of these people have now become followers of Jesus, they came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts and brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, which is an interesting note. Uh, the popular kind of uh, currency of silver that day was a drachma. It was about a day's wages. So you work a day, and you get a drachma. So what Luke is telling us here is this was no small sum. Like This was a small fortune that these people are willing to burn in order to worship rightly about 50,000 days' worth of wages. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, where do we see this theme of real life change and total surrender? I think you see in verse 19. Let me read it again for you. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, let me just be honest with you and totally transparent with you. That scene in verse 19 makes me feel like a little bit nervous. Um, For me, I've shared this before, I didn't really grow up going to church very much, and this fed into like the way I assumed Christianity was Growing up, it was almost this like fascist-like movement where you like burn books if they don't align with doctrine and faith. And like I've even heard stories like some of you grew up going to like church camps where you know you would go and some speaker would talk about the evils of the secular world, and then you have to go like burn your Harry Potter books and burn your NSYNC CDs, and you were really upset about it, and you're like, man, I really missed that CD. You know, like I really enjoyed it, and I got caught up in a frenzy, and I burned it. And I've heard stories of this. How you're still in church, I do not know. But I'm still glad you're here. <laughs> so, so there's a little bit of this where I'm looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, like, I, I almost don't want to feed into that stereotype. I think there's something actually really beautiful about the verse that we just read, verse 19. But I think what you're seeing is one of the clearest glimpses into people who have realized what we're reaching for. You're getting the clearest glimpse into men and women who have been so radically changed by God that their lives are completely different. I mean, completely different to the point that they're willing not just to walk away from an old way of life, but burn it so there's no opportunity to ever go back. Like, that's what we want, right? That type of change is what brings us to the city. And so here's the question I want you to ask yourself. It's like, what does this look like in your life? We're going to be more specific than this, okay? We're not saying like, okay, everybody go home and get some books, and we're going to have a bonfire on Larimer Street, okay? That's not the action step. But Let's ask ourselves, like, what does it look like to change in the way these people have changed? And what I want you to do as we talk about this, I want to kind of help you see maybe three implications of what happens in verse 19. And I want you to think as we talk about this about maybe aspects of your life you're really desirous of changing. And so it might be like a relationship with a friend. It might be a relationship with a spouse um, where you've just kind of assumed like it's going to be like this for the rest of our lives. It might be um, an addiction that you're working through and maybe it's something like that culture talks about a lot, like with drugs or with drinking. It might be something much more anonymous that's much more easy to kind of hide and justify, like a shopping addiction. Like you have a bad day, and it's like, I'm going to make some bad decisions on Amazon.com. Like whatever, whatever it might be, there's aspects of our lives where we're like, I don't want it to be this way anymore. And you want the type of change that you see in this scene. And so I think what we're seeing is how this change comes about. Let me make three observations and ask you kind of some questions to ask yourself uh, as you hopefully see change in your own life. So one, here's, here's what I see, is you really get a glimpse into total surrender. And here's the question I would ask with this. 
is whose vision for your life are you ultimately pursuing as you desire change? So you're seeing this total surrender, and I would ask you the question of whose vision for your life are you ultimately hoping to realize? Because here's the thing, is as we're desiring to change, it's not just important to say, like, oh, I want to change, but ask a much deeper question of, like, who am I trying to change into? And whose vision for my life am I ultimately trying to obtain? Like, for some of us, it's just a vision that we've imposed upon ourselves. Maybe it's something that we saw or a movie that we watched even in our childhood and gave us a glimpse into saying, like, if I can be like that one day, then I'll really be happy. It might be a vision that was imposed upon us by our parents. It's amazing the influence that parents can have, even if we don't live near them, even if they're not living anymore, how they can impose a vision upon us and without us even realizing us, us saying, like, I'm hopefully trying to live up to the expectation that my mom had for me that was pressed upon me even in my infancy. It might be from something you've read. It might be something that culture teaches. And here's what's so powerful about this scene is you see men and women who totally surrender every vision to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Like they take every vision for their lives and they lay it down for the sake of pursuing knowing Jesus and believing Jesus and being like Jesus and making much of Jesus. Like we really, that, that's what we want for you. Like we believe that vision for your life is for your joy. We feel like you can be expressed in a tremendously diverse fashion, but ultimately we desire for you and we believe what your ultimate desire for you, what you're chasing after as you desire, change after change after change after change, is becoming and believing Jesus. And what you're seeing is men and women who are totally surrendering to that, to that vision. I mean, you see the total surrender, it's like even if it costs us everything, like literally costs us everything, like even our wealth, we will lay it down for the sake of believing and following. I love this image of total surrender. I mean, it's, it's, so, it's like they have finally recognized the weightiness of God and the finiteness of themselves. And they're like, okay, we give up, we surrender. You are greater than us and you love us more and we will lay down everything to chase after and believe and to follow you. And let me tell you something. This is like so hard. Uh, maybe it's just me, but I feel like just Western culture as a whole, it's so big on personal autonomy and control and being able to kind of like, you know, I'm in control. I feel like, like just to, for me, I feel like this is exemplified. Like when I watch TV, like even if I'm not going to change the channel because I'm going to watch the entirety of a sporting event for like, you know, football games like three and a half, four hours. Like I demand to hold the controller the entire time. Like that's how much of a control freak I am. Like my wife is like, wait, you're never going to change the channel. Right. But I want to make sure that the channel is never changed. I want to hold on to this and have it with me. And it's like my safety blanket. And I'm going to hold on to it. Like, I love to be in control. I think men, like, we love to be in control because not to be in control means that we are weak. I think for ladies, I, I don't know as much about what you feel, but in my observation, at least when I'm working with many of you, is, you know, you're, I think surrender is also a feeling of weakness. Um, and, and particularly, I think you have good reason to have that fear because historically you've seen exploitation of women and manipulation of women and abuse of women uh, because of sort of cultural perceived weakness. And so it's a really frightening thing to think about, like full letting go of my life, surrendering to personal autonomy, total surrender to the vision that God has for me. I'll tell you, I was reading an essay about this from a counselor a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about this struggle in our lives and he wrote what I think is one of the best sentences I've ever read anywhere. I know that's probably hyperbole, but it was fantastic. And here, here's what he said. Um, I'm going to tell you what it is, okay? I'm not just going to move on. Uh, it'll be on the screen as well. He says, from the perspective of the ego, surrender is the squeal of the pig on the way to the slaughter. 
But from another perspective, we can think of it as a birth screen. The first gasp of breath after a rebirth as surrender ushers us into a new movement of life and a new stage of the journey. And he's right. Like, that's the way I think about surrendering my life to anyone, even God. It's like, I am a pig on the way to the slaughter. Like, I can't trust you, and you don't know what's best for me, and I've got to have a tight grip on this, or else my life isn't going to look the way I want it to. And he's totally right. It's like, when we understand the goodness of who God is, as revealed in the gospel, that he would love us so much that he would lay down even his own son to die in our place for our sins. Like, when that is the real revealed character and nature of this God of the universe that we are meant to surrender to, we can say, like, no, like, I'm not about to be slaughtered. I'm about to be given new life. And it is ultimately for our joy because he is going to give us the change that we desperately desire. Now, second, you don't just see total surrender, but you also see them accept reality. They accept reality. And the question I want to ask you with that is, um, will I see my life for what it really is? Will I see my life for what it really is? See, I felt really convicted this past week because, like, I think for me, I can't even by the nature of, I, I just, I can't escape it. Like, I grew up, we grew up in a very hyper-tolerant, the only thing that is wrong is to tell people that they're wrong type of culture. And so you see a scene where people look at an aspect of their lives and like, this is so wicked, like we actually need to burn this stuff. And I'm like, ah, yeah, that's a little bit over the top. Settle down, everybody. What if you want those later? What if it comes back into culture? What if it's cool again? What if you can sell it on eBay? Like, there's a lot of different options. And man, I, I was so convicted this week reading this scene and seeing people not only letting God be Lord and totally surrendering to him, but really letting him function like a mirror that reflects back to them what is beautiful and what is wicked about their lives and then them literally putting the wicked aspects of their lives to death. Like we don't talk that way very much. It's not like very okay to talk that way very much but we need somebody in the universe to reflect back to us who we really are and to see the beautiful aspects and to see the wicked aspects and and i think in particular to see the wicked aspects because it's not okay like it starts a twitter war for anybody to call anybody out about anything (laughs) and to say here's this god who will allow us to see ourselves for who we really are. Let me tell you something. Like, acceptance of reality will breathe life into the areas of life where we clamor for change. Like, I just, this is, again, just personal experience from working with people. But it's like, I just feel like the number one issue that typically, a lot of times, I don't want to kind of overly generalize, but at least what I see, the number one issue with people who are struggling seriously in their marriages is one or both, People in the marriage, like, will not accept reality. Like, they just won't accept the reality that they're not as good of a person as they always thought they were. And, like, they have a spouse who's talking to them about their sin, and it's the same thing their parents said to them, the same thing roommates said to them, the same thing friends have said to them, the same thing that employee evaluations have said to them. And it's like, no, you're all wrong. Like, objectively from the outside, we'd all be like, everybody's saying the exact same thing. You should listen to this. You should understand, like, and the Bible's true and total depravity's true, and we all have this propensity to be wicked at times. So it's totally okay if you get called out on it, admit it, confess it, grow in it. But what do we do when we're in the midst of conflicts? It's like, I'm just misunderstood you made me do this, I was hungry, like I have right to do this because like we didn't get lunch and it's okay for me to act this way. 
And I'll tell you, like, stuff like that, that sort of self-righteousness is poison to a relationship where people just won't accept reality that, like, I'm not as good of a person as I always thought I was. And we would rather fight <laughs> and really disagree and I misunderstood. I'll tell you where I see this is when people are working through addictions. Like, for us in our history, we've worked with people with really kind of blatant, out-there addictions, really small addictions. And what I see is the common denominator in all of those a lot of times are men and women who are not willing to accept reality. Like, they'll accept reality when they get caught. Like, if things go really bad or they relapse, like, tears, crying, upset, we'll never do this again, I'm so sorry. But then, like, a week later, it's like, oh, it's totally fine. Like, I can have a drink. I'm in control. I have, it's like, would you please accept reality? Like, there is an aspect of your life you have no control over, and so you just need to confess it and admit it and continue to walk in that and not expect to fix it because you felt really bad or felt really guilty in one time. And we need this. Like, many of us have lacked this in our lives. We grew up in homes where parents were supposed to do this for us, and we either had parents who basically mirrored back to us that everything was terrible about us and you need to do better, or you had parents that mirrored back to you, like, you're the best at everything ever. And as a result, we are tremendously dysfunctional in our relationships, aren't we? Like a lot of us, we can't admit where we're wrong. A lot of us can't believe we're ever right. And that's where the God of the universe functions in as the good and perfect dad who reflects back to us. Look, there's some parts of you that are absolutely beautiful, but there's some parts of you that are wicked and you need to see them for what they are and you need to walk away from them completely and entirely and quit cold turkey and not try to rationalize it or justify it or think, oh, just this one time, it'll be completely different. Like, no, you gotta burn it and walk away. Burn the boats, walk away. And I would challenge you even, like some of you are working through things right now where you literally like, You've been through the same cycle of believing something will be different, whether it's a relationship or whether it's an addiction or whatever it might be, like 50 times or more even. I would challenge you, like, it's time to accept reality. It's time for you to really change. It's time for you to finally see your life clearly for for what it really is. It's not you to be depressed or self-loathing, but instead you're just accepting reality in a place where you can finally bring about change. Now, okay, so we totally surrender with that, then we don't just totally surrender, but we accept the reality and we reflect and we see our aspects of our lives as good or as bad. But third and finally, here, here's what I'm seeing, is we're seeing people celebrate victories and confess sin. Like, that's the long path of change. Celebration of victories, confession of sin. Now, we don't see this kind of holistically in this scene, but we actually know more about the church in Ephesus than any other church in the Bible, you have Ephesians, you have First and Second Timothy, where Timothy was one of the pastors there. You have First, Second, Third John, where John was one of the pastors there as well. And it's amazing to me how these pastors were all so eager to celebrate victories and to lead their people to confess sin. So on one hand, like, it wasn't nothing other than like, you could do better, right? Some of you grew up in homes like this, and that was terrible for you. And it's hard for you to believe you're doing anything well. And I would say to you, you need to read the parts of the New Testament where Paul is not just like, burn this, stop doing this, quit doing this, you stink at this. Like, no, he's like, I thank God for you. I see God's grace in you. I see you growing in these ways. These are fruits of spirit in you. And some of you, you just need to learn to celebrate God moving and, and, and actively changing you. Like, it's not humility to pretend like you're bad at everything, okay? That's not humility. And so in some ways, like, as you're looking to grow, it's okay for you to be like, man, I'm like seven days sober. That's amazing. 
hey, I had like a really bad day at work and I didn't go home and buy something on Amazon and put myself into further debt because I believed that like a dress would make me feel better. Hey, like normally I burst out in anger when somebody does that to me, but I didn't. Like, thank you, Jesus. Like, I'm really excited about where I'm growing and where I'm, and I would encourage you to be that in other people's lives as well, whether it's a spouse or whether it's a friend or it's somebody in your city group to say like, hey, I see you growing in this way and that's God's grace and like, thanks be to God. But not only that, there's not just celebration, but there's confession as well. And John, in 1 John 1, he, he hits on this. He talks about this. In verse 7 of 1 John, he says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, this flips the way that a lot of you think about Christianity on its head. And I know I say this like every single week, but it's because like this is the hardest aspect of Christianity, I think, to believe. That like the heartbeat of Christianity is not you being good enough. It's not you being perfect. It's not you doing all the right things. It's you seeing reality that you are a broken, sinful person and you are in desperate need of a Savior. What will kill your growth is not that you're sinful, it's your self-righteousness. And to believe you don't need Jesus, like you don't need God himself to change you. And to believe you can change through reading the right books and getting the right relationships and getting the right environments and working out the right amount. Like you need God, that's how bad we are. We need God to change us. But here's the really good news. What we see here is when we confess our need for change, God is faithful to meet us and to forgive us and to change us into the person we claim we're to be and to be increasingly conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so we walk this long, hard path of saying, okay, there's this aspect of my life. I totally surrender it to God. Like, I'm going to stop trying to maintain control. I'm going to admit that I don't have control. I'm going to accept my finiteness in the universe. God is big, and I am not. He is strong, and I am not. I surrender this, his vision for this aspect of my life. I will submit to. I will see it for what it really is. I will not justify it or explain it away or you know, blame it on circumstance. I will accept the beautiful and the ugly aspects of my life. And as I try to change the aspects of my life that aren't particularly beautiful, I walk this path in this cycle of saying, I'm going to celebrate my victories. I'm going to have men and women alongside me who are celebrating these victories. But at the same time, I'm going to be eager to confess where I've fallen short. I I would really challenge you to think about that. Like, if you are struggling in your marriage and you guys are at odds with one another, like, I would challenge you for your first step in the midst of a conflict not to be like, no, 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 here's why I'm much better than you think I am. But be like, no, 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 like, you don't know the half of it. Like, I'm way more wicked than you ever begin to realize. You're just get, getting, like, me not ta- taking care of the dishes. Like, that's just a small percentage of how bad I am. And to say, in our relationships and in our friendships and in our marriage, like, we are marked by our humility and by our repentance and our request for forgiveness and will you forgive me? Like, we as followers of Jesus should be the most humble of all, but also the most hopeful knowing that it's not like we just wallow in the fact that we're sinful people, but we actually have a real tangible hope that Jesus is going to do in us what we clamor to have done. So here's what we're going to do. I would really love to just kind of 
as we respond, like create space and opportunity for you to think about an aspect of your life. And maybe just like focus on one. Don't think about, oh my gosh, like tomorrow I'm going to be perfect. That will not go well. Think about like there's this one area in my life that I have a vision a year from now to grow substantially in. That's how growth is. It is so messy and so hard and so much longer than we would ever want it to be. I would encourage you to think about that aspect of your life through the lens of total surrender, of acceptance of reality, and of celebration and confession. And maybe just think like, what do I practically need to do in order to start in that process? Like, does it mean like I just need to accept Jesus for who he really is as Lord and Savior? Does it mean like I need to accept the reality of this area of my life that I've been hiding um, and like it really is bad? Does it mean you might need to walk in the light? Does it mean that there might be some aspect of your life that literally nobody knows about other than you or maybe like one other person who doesn't live here and you need to tell somebody? Let me just even tell you and give you an encouragement. Like for us as pastors, like if you come and tell us some part of your life that like I'm sure you're afraid to tell anybody about, let me tell you what our response is not going to be. Like, oh my gosh, I've never heard that before and your life is hopeless. Like you're going to get, it's okay. (laughs) Like it's okay. It's not okay for you to be there. But it's okay not to be okay. And Jesus, he heals those who confess where they're weak. And there's life and there's hope and we will be alongside you and we will help you and we would love to talk to you. If there's something in your life where you're like, I can't tell anybody, like you can tell us. Like we are really a safe place. So we would love to pray with you and talk with you afterwards as well. Let's do that. Let's pray. I feel like we just need to recognize our need. Like this is not a three-step program. It is a confession of our need for God and we will respond and talk about that here. Uh, further. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your weightiness and your magnitude and the greatness of who you are and that there's such a radical disparity between who you are and who we are. We thank you that in the midst of this infinite chasm between the two of us, you love us so much that you would come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That you would move in us through your spirit. And that you would lead us to a place where you would actually be involved in our lives. Like, it is crazy to me like that you actually want to change us. That you care about our mismanagement of money. That you care about what we do with our sex lives. That you care about, like, that those affairs are not too trivial for the king. But it, you step in and you move and you conform and you change us into the men and women we clamor to be. And so, God, my prayer is for us as men and women, a room full of people who do not probably like a lot of aspects of our lives, that we would see hope for change in you, um, and we would even see a plan for change in you, and that we would totally surrender to you. We would finally admit that you're God. Like, I don't see any other solution other than that, that we would finally accept your perspective in terms of who we really are, And we would start walking in that of repentance as well as celebration of what your grace and spirit is doing in our lives. Change us. Like, I really do pray that there's men and women here who believe that they could never change or there's somebody in their life who could never change. And like, this really is a day that they can look back on, not like tomorrow, but six months from now, a year from now, even a generation from now and say, like, that was a day where I really believed that it didn't have to be this way anymore. I really do believe believe you can do that. And we just ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.